Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis, and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Welcome to another episode of Between Two Lips. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach. And in this week's episode, I am joined by an amazing advocate, ambassador. She's just amazing. Her name is Sherry Palm. She is the founder of APOPS, the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. She's also the author of The Silent Epidemic. She's one of the first people who... I reached out to and was connected with when I first started my journey many, many moons ago. And it was really amazing to chat with her in person today. We've connected many times through Facebook messages and what have you, but having a conversation was was amazing. She herself has had pelvic organ prolapse and was sidelined by that diagnosis, as many people are, and used the emotion of anger to fuel her forward and trying to change the landscape around pelvic floor dysfunction specific to prolapse, wanting to increase screening. And she speaks to doctors. She's spoken with the FDA. She's always on top of the latest research. And she truly is one of the the go-tos. She has an incredible Facebook community. Over 20,000 people are in that community. So much support, so much information is shared there. And one topic that we covered, so we covered a lot of things. We covered surgery, we covered pessaries, we covered mesh. We also covered the emotional turmoil and the mental health component to pelvic organ prolapse. And one of the topics that comes up or one of the words that some people use to describe the emotions they feel is suicide. And we wanted to be clear that we know of no people that have committed suicide. We just know that that is an emotion. People struggle to know how to go forward. We don't believe that pelvic organ prolapse leads to suicide. We know that it can take an emotional toll. But support groups like hers on Facebook are a place where people can go to seek help and to reach out and to receive the guidance that they need. So I just wanted to point that out and to highlight that ahead of the conversation. I hope you enjoy what we shared and I hope you have an opportunity to read her book. And also I'll post a link to her upcoming book. Also join her Facebook group, and find the voices, well, her voice, but she has played a role in really increasing awareness about this topic and truly is a pioneer in this space. And I was really honored to share a conversation with her. So let's jump in. 
All right, here we are with Sherry Palm. Welcome, Sherry. Nice to have you on this week's episode. It's a delight to join you today, Kim. I'm very excited for what we're going to share today. Yeah, you have been one of the, if I think back to the years that I've been working in pelvic health, I think your book was the very first one. And I don't remember how I found out about you or how we initially connected, how I even learned about your book. Might have been through Dr. Bruce Crawford. I don't remember. But anyway, you're, you've been in my in this space of pelvic health for, for so many years, being such an amazing advocate. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself and talk about what got you into the world of pelvic health and the work that you do now. I'd be delighted to share that, the base of the whole story. Like most women who experience pelvic organ prolapse, I had never heard of the condition before being diagnosed with it. I was, if I, I go back to the age of 30, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, hardcore, wheelchair bound, blah, blah, blah. And I found answers for myself. Obviously, I, I dug down deep. It took about three years to get leveled off. But from that point forward, I was extremely proactive about my health. I did all the right stuff. I did all the annual screenings. If there was something going on I, d- I did not understand, I dug into it. So if you fast forward to my mid-50s when I was diagnosed with pelvic organ prolapse, that was December of 2007. It wasn't like it was, you know, like immediately after that. It was a ways mm-hmm. beyond that. But I was shocked that I'd never heard of this condition. I had a classic story, like most women that have POP. I had, we're all, we're all busy. We're all running in 15 directions at the same time, juggling families and, and jobs and so on. And so when we go to the bathroom, we tend to just zoom in and drop trial and urinate and wipe and pull our pants up and wash our hands and zoom right back to work. That's our norm as women. And so I'd been doing that for about three months. And this particular day, I noticed that I had been noticing what felt like a lump down there. I didn't know where it down there was at that point. And I thought, what is that? So I got a handheld mirror out. And I took a look to see what was going on down there and was pretty shocked to see a walnut-sized lump coming out of my vagina. And I wasn't freaked out about it. I had no pain with POP. Some women have got pain. I didn't have any. And I just knew it wasn't normal. And of course, it looked like a tumor. So I contacted my buddy, who was my primary care practitioner, and she said, come on over, we'll, we'll do a public examination. Upon examination, she said, very matter-of-factly, you have pelvic organ prolapse. I'll fit you with a pessary. If you don't like the pessary, I'll refer you to a good urogynecologist in our area, and you can move forward from there. Mm-hmm. I had no clue what she was talking about. No clue whatsoever. So I went home and did what most women would do. I hit Dr. Google to see what, what. Mm-hmm. And everything that I pulled up, there wasn't a whole lot of research. This is in, again, 2007. So there wasn't a whole lot of research studies on the internet at that point about prolapse. But... I found plenty of articles that all said the same thing. So common, so common, so common. And the stat used back then was 3.3 million women in the U.S. alone. And that just blew my socks off. I thought, how could this be that common? And I never heard of it. That just didn't make any sense to me. So every time I pulled up an article, I, I just, I got madder and madder. I thought, this is ridiculous. How, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. So that's what began my journey. It was anger. I, I didn't go through any of the... A lot of women have a lot of anxiety and depression and, and other emotional issues that we'll get into in a bit, but I was just mad. I was just ticked off. So I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll write a book about this. 
And then, like, first time authors, every woman will know about this. And it'll change the whole dynamic. I was so naive back then. So, so within two weeks, I knew this was my destiny. I, I don't know how to express it. I knew that. I just knew this is where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I had no experience with public speaking. I had no experience with writing books. I had no experience with building websites. I didn't know any of that stuff. <laughs> Nonprofits, none of that stuff. So, I just, I just knew that's where I'm supposed to go. So... I had the pessary at my primary care fit of the pessary. She did a good job. She got the right size right out of the chute, and it fit well, and it worked well. And within about two weeks, I knew that wasn't the answer for me because I, I have an insane life. I work a sixty-hour week. I always have, you know, dogs to take care of, family to take care of. Much less yourself. You know, there's just there was no time for the extra thing to add into the dynamic. Mm-hmm. So. I contacted my PCP and she said, well, I'll refer you to this urogynecologist then. So it was January before I saw her and it was a typical urogynecologic examination. She's a great urogyne. I just adore her. And she took her time with me and after she finished the examination, we went into her consult room and she went into great detail about what I had. And at that point, it was, she diagnosed two of the three types of POP that I had. She diagnosed a systole seal and a rectal seal. I also had an enteral seal, but she didn't recognize that when she did that initial examination. That was discovered upon surgery, and she said it was a very large enteral seal. So after we went through all the, all the Q&A stuff, she asked me if I had any other questions, and I said, well, I just have one, and that is, how is it possible I don't know about this? Mm-hmm. It's. I was reading on, on the computer, and it's so common, it's so common. I've never heard of this. And she said, well, Sherry, women won't talk about this. Flames shot out of my ears. I was so, <laughs> like, what? Are you telling me this is impossible? So, again, that was a good thing, because it fueled the flames and started the whole, the wall rolling even more aggressively. So, she said, well, you know what? Go home, kick back, relax, continue with your life. It's it's the middle of winter here. Play with your flower beds in the spring. Enjoy your summer. Come back and see me in the fall, and then we'll talk about surgery. And I was like, tooties? I don't think so. I want to be fixed yesterday. Mm-hmm. Line me up. So she's okay. Well, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. So we we went forward that in that direction, and I had surgery scheduled for February, early February. And so in the time frame between when I was diagnosed in December and I went in for my surgery in February, I had done all my research for the book, all the backdrop. And then I used, it was a 12-week heel curve for me because of the three types. I was grade three of severity. And she also advised me, she said, I I know your type. You're an exercise geek. (laughs) No exercise for 12 weeks. I'm telling you, I want my my repair to stay repaired. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I got it. I got it. So I used that that surgical heel curve time to write the book. And then I just moved forward with marketing the book. That was the initial mm-hmm. process for me. And I knew nothing about marketing, so I had to learn all that stuff, you know. And, and then I was I was about 15 months or so into that marketing of that first book. And the light bulb came on that if I wanted to really reach women effectively, help women effectively, I should found a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So since I knew nothing about that, I went down that rabbit hole. And luckily for me, Market University here in Milwaukee has a, a great program that is pro bono with their law school. 
that helps nonprofits get their 501c3 federal designation. Mm-hmm. And you have to apply for it, of course. They don't just hand it out to everybody. But I applied, and they helped me through the process. I got that 501c3 and got that established. And right about halfway between connecting with Marquette and when it came to fruition, someone reached out to me from the UK who had a public organ prolapse Facebook page. And she wanted to know if I would come in and help her moderate the, her forum. And she had seen my book somewhere or heard about my book somewhere. And uh, I said, well, sure, okay, that sounds good. And there was about 150 women in that space at that point in time. And so I started engaging in that that patient advocacy side where you're actually sharing mm-hmm. insights of what you've experienced with other women. Mm-hmm. And the woman-to-woman dialogue is critical to every aspect of, of significant health issues that we have. And support groups are, are the Facebook groups, are they're priceless. So I moved forward with that. And then once APOPS got rolling a little bit, and you go through stages, you know, I, since I didn't know anything about building websites, I had to learn how to navigate that. So everything was done slowly back then. But step by step, you move forward. And every day, I just became more embedded and loved more and more what I was doing. And I, again, knew that this was my space. I was supposed to be here. So wrote the book 2008, published it in 2009, that first book. 2010, founded APOPS. And then... APOP stands for? Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. Thank you for that. Thank you. And <laughs> it's just a, such a mouthful, you know. <laughs> and so then it was just a, a gradual buildup of steam over time. And you kind of know, I mean, it's just like what you do. You kind of know, okay... I need to add this to the picture. I need to add this to the picture. You know, let's explore mm-hmm. this a little bit. So you kind of shift a little bit as you go and recognize what the, the needs are that have to be addressed and change how you do things, mix things up a little bit. And more and more women were reaching out to me. They were finding the landline number and calling. And they found, I don't know how people found my email address, but somehow they did. Everything's online. Now you have to be careful mm-hmm. what you do. And <laughs> it was out there somehow. So people were finding me that way. So I was answering questions. Well, then the woman who started the Facebook forum in the UK had been surgically repaired and she didn't want to do it anymore. So I said, well, if that's the case, would you mind if I made that APOPS Took over. Yep. forum? And she said, well, sure, go ahead. So we acknowledge her in our, our history on that page. So she's not forgotten. She's the one that built the base of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that forum over time has grown and grown and we have got over 23,000 women now in that space from 177 countries. And there's there's practitioners in there as well. There's quite a few PTs. There's different kinds of advocates like like you that do different aspects of, of pelvic wellness. Mm-hmm. There's We have about 100 urogynecologists in there. But by and large, the practitioners observe, and that's a that's gold as far as I'm concerned. They come in and they observe right. rather than comment. And it's more woman-to-woman dialogue that goes on in there. And the the support that they provide for each other is just priceless. It's just mm-hmm. priceless. How they intersect, and it, it's broken down into, because it's one from mid-teens through end of life in this space, mm-hmm. and every decade has unique needs, mm-hmm. and every type of prolapse has unique needs. So a woman will come in and she'll post a question particular to her scenario, and then a subsector within that forum of women that had that, had that same experience step up 
answer her question, give their experience, share tools that they use and discovered. And so it's basically women helping women. It's not APOPs doing the heavy lifting. We're just the, the, the boat that's floating along the water. They're the ones that are doing the oaring. And how they shore each other up and support each other is just priceless. As an example, when a woman's going to be going in for surgery, obviously we're all in high states of anxiety when we're going in for surgery. And POP is especially anxiety-provoking because women just don't know a whole lot about the condition. They have no clue what to expect from surgery. So they'll announce that they're going in for surgery, and then women of all ages in that form will insert their comments about, you know, we're behind you, we're all here cheering for you, we're sending prayers and hugs and all that stuff. So the support aspect is probably the most, I mean, it's, it's equal, equal parts support and equal parts education, POP education. Mm-hmm. So it just does its own thing and cooks its own juice. And I just... I, community. Hey, I, I zigzag based on what needs are showing themselves any given day at any given moment in that space. So... Yeah, they're priceless. Yeah, it's remarkable that group and and the work that you've done, the all the advocacy that you continue to do. And I want to go back to so you had your diagnosis and you mentioned enterocele. Mm-hmm. So first of all, can you define what prolapse is? Sure. And the different types because sure. enterocele is one that is not as commonly talked about. So bladder, uterus, rectum, we typically talk the most about but enterocele, urethrocele, or others that can happen. So if you can say, like, what is prolapse? What are the different types? And what are some of the more common symptoms associated with the different types? You bet. So you've got a PC muscle, which sits at the base of the pelvic cavity, a support structure basically underneath the pelvic organs. It's kind of a, it's often referred to as a hammock-shaped, I think more trampoline-shaped is more... pelvic floor, yeah. Yeah, pelvic floor. Above it, there's ligaments that hold the organs up. So due to a variety of causal factors, and there's many causal factors for prolapse, but childbirth and menopause are the two that head at the top of the leaderboard. Those organs will shift position and be, they'll push into the vagina. And they're not literally, except for the uterus, they're not literally in the vagina, they're pushing against that vaginal wall. So actually, when you see pictures of prolapse, except for uterine prolapse, you're actually looking at the organs behind that vaginal wall. But they'll shift into that vaginal cavity and then they'll drop down out of the vagina, sometimes just a little bit, sometimes, like with the uterus, with uterine prolapse, if it's a procedential, it's completely outside of the, the vagina. So there's varying degrees or there's four grades of severity. Women typically have two to three types of prolapse at the same time. I've only had conversation with one woman all these years that had just one type. So it's extremely variable from woman to woman, and how it manifests is different from woman to woman. And symptom-wise, certainly uh, urinary incontinence is the most common symptom. But urine retention occurs as well. So you see the incontinence in the early stages of prolapse, and you see the retention in the higher grades three and four, where you can't get that pee to come out. And that was me. Trust me, that's just as frustrating, if not more so, than, than leaking the urine. There's fecal incontinence. There's pain with intimacy. The most common symptom, well, the most not, incontinence isn't the most common symptom. Tissues bulging out of the vagina is the most common mm-hmm. symptom. That, that's the biggie. That makes you recognize that there's something going on there. Chronic constipation is extremely common with rectal seal. You can have a lack of sexual sensation, mm-hmm. and that's those organs are pushing on nerves. You can have rectal, vaginal, back, or pelvic pain 
rectal or vaginal pressure. And of course, that's how, who interprets it as pain, who interprets it as, as pressure. That's very individual, woman to woman. You know, you, you can't yeah. really say this is exactly pain or pressure. That's how we interpret it. And a big one that I've recently posted about that gets no press time is tampons push out. Mm-hmm. I posted that a couple of days ago in the forum. And the, the responses I got were, I had that for 14 years. I had that for mm-hmm. many years. You know, and, but women don't know that that's what that means. And I had that myself. I had a hysterectomy at the age of 40. And I couldn't keep, I had my son at 35 and hysterectomy at 40. And I couldn't keep a tampon in, in that pocket between there. And I didn't understand why. But then I had a hysterectomy, no periods. It was not even an issue anymore. So I didn't mm-hmm. question it. Mm-hmm. And then later on down the road, when I, I learned about pelvic organ prolapse and I was doing my research, I was like, ding, 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 <laughs> there mm-hmm. it is right there. So that's one of those things that, that just kind of got lost in the shuffle along the way. Mm-hmm. So women's symptoms vary considerably from woman to woman. Our lifestyles are all different. Our behaviors are all different. Our coexisting conditions are all unique. And the types or degree of severity of prolapse is unique. So... Mm-hmm. While you can experience any of those symptoms, or in some cases, most of those symptoms, I, I don't really think it's a value to say, this is what you're going to experience, because we just yep. don't know, because we're all so different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I have that same experience so often where I, the other day I posted about rectocele, and it seems like there's a lot of people that come to me specifically because I've had a rectocele and have had surgery for it, and I talk a lot about it. And when I list off the symptoms that I experienced that were part of my, you know, experience of rectocele, they all say, check, 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 check. You've just listed off all the things that I've been dealing with for X number of years. And I had no idea how to even talk to a doctor about it. Or I asked my doctor, but everything was considered, quote unquote, normal. And so there's those that happens all the time. So bladder prolapse is where the bladder bulges into the front wall of the vagina. The uterus, as you talked about, goes bulges down into the rectocele is where rectum bulges in the back wall of the vagina. And and so talk about enterocele. So this is something that is less common, less commonly talked about, I, I guess I'll say, but this was part of your experience. So talk right. to us a little bit about that. Okay. What an enterocele is, is it's your intestines, basically. Mm-hmm. And they sit in the sac that's above the pelvic cavity. And there can be little tears any place in that sac. And then they'll drop down into that pelvic cavity. And they can go over the top of the uterus. Or they can just fall down behind it in any of the empty... And I shouldn't really call it empty spaces. But any, any place where there's room for stuff to squish through. And enterocele, right. those intestines can squish through. So they most commonly occur, I believe, after a woman has a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. That uterus is the hub of those organs. It's like the, the center of the wagon wheel, so to speak. And so when you remove that hub, it's kind of like, I envision it kind of like a, a wall of squishy bricks. And if you remove that center brick, they, they're not going to fall, fall down, but they all kind of squish together a little bit. They're displaced right. then. So with the, those intestines coming down, yeah, they can they can drop down in any space that, mm-hmm. that's open space there for them. And women that have got uh, enterocele often experience uh, back pain. It's more mm-hmm. common in that sector. So the other type of prolapse that we haven't mentioned yet is the vaginal vault. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a hysterectomy, they should be securing the doctor should be the surgeon should be, should be securing the top of the vagina so it doesn't cave in on itself. 
So you're looking at your vaginal walls and they, they take that uterus out of the top up here and then those walls, they cave in and they go out the bottom end. Mm-hmm. And it's, I've read statistics in a, a few different studies that indicate that between about 62 and 67% of women that have hysterectomies, the top is not secured. Right. So they're not teaching this, this valuable technique to gynecologic surgeons until they're at the subspecialty pelvic organ prolapse, your gynecologic space. And since so many gynecologists do hysterectomies, they should be taught this. It should be standard yeah. operating procedure, but it's not. So that, that's yeah. a, one of the issues on our leaderboard that has to be addressed. Yeah. And so think, you know, listening to your story, do you feel, and you, we will never 100% know, of course, but do you feel that having a hysterectomy played a role in the development of your prolapse and your enterocele? I do, but I had many, I have like seven causal factors. So, right. And yeah. like you said, I mean, there's no way of knowing which one was the pivot one. And obviously childbirth was probably way up there at the top, but I yeah. had a very, a very mild, that was nine hours labor. I had a, a relatively mild childbirth, no forceps, no suction, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So, but I also did about three, two to three summers of landscaping that involved moving around boulders, boulder boulders. Mm-hmm. And with my body and also shoveling, it was a, the flower bed was like 400 feet by about 10 feet wide, shoveling gravel into that whole space. So there's a lot of heavy lifting for me. Right. And of course, menopausal yep. layer is, is a, a causal for me as well. So yep. I've got MS, weak tissue, yep. you know, so there's many, many, many for me, but I, I have no doubt that, that this is strong likelihood that the... Yeah. And, and the, the suspension of the top of the vagina. So there's... One procedure I know of called McCall's caldoplasty, which is is doing just that. And when I look at research-wise, knowing that hysterectomy does increase the risk of prolapse, and if you are having hysterectomy because of prolapse, the risk is even greater. Like the likelihood of recurrence or other types of prolapse afterward is, is even greater. And a lot of that has to do with things like root causes that may not have been addressed, but also thinking about if they have suspended the the top of the vagina. Because the uterus, the cervix and the uterus play a role in helping support the top of the vagina. And yes. when they're not there anymore, right, right, we need right. something to, to help that. So yeah. in your, I, I'm assuming your answer to this is going to be yes, but a big thing that I recommend people having a hysterectomy is that they do ask about how it's suspended, but also being aware of the increased risk of prolapse and then going forward how they should be managing their pelvic health would you agree i 100 100 on both counts yes yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. full information and and yeah yeah absolutely. yeah what do you think that in terms of this being you you made a post today that spoke so truly to me as well and that all of the advocacy that you do you are often reaching out to physicians and surgeons like the medical community to say you know, can I come and speak? Can I make a presentation? Can I share my story? And oftentimes we get silence in return. We don't have anybody welcoming that. And today you had, as you, your wording, I believe, said a forward-thinking medical student who said, hey, hold on a minute, I think we should involve this. And now you've been asked to come to the Grand, grand Rounds, which is, is essentially a collection of doctors looking for continuing education and support and presentations. So how can we change that? How after all the years of you and, and other people advocating for the space, why are things not changing as fast as we want them to? 
I boy, I wish I had the the answer to that question. I, mm-hmm. I just don't know what the answer is. I mean, for for a long time, you've got to when you reflect on the fact that POP has been medically documented for nearly four thousand years, and we still aren't talking about it comfortably, openly. Mm-hmm. That's a, a part of the equation. There's no doubt. But with the medical community, I, I just I don't think. I mean, I I don't think that they recognize how priceless patient advocacy is to what they do as a, a supplement to what they're doing, adjunct to what mm-hmm. they're doing, and, and that we fill a really pivotal role in helping patients understand the base information about medical conditions and mm-hmm. support them through the emotional journeys that physicians don't have time to engage right. in. I, I don't think there's anything competitive about it, that, that that's why they're not you know, listening to us. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I don't know that. I mean, I, I am very, very blessed that I, I got connections with a lot of amazing urogynecologists now globally. And if I've got a question, I mean, they respond very quickly. Mm-hmm. So they recognize the value of what we're doing. I mean, it wasn't always that way. I was laughed at mm-hmm. by the biggest and the best in the beginning. <laughs> it really was. Mm-hmm. But but I think it's coming around. It's just medicine in general does not adapt well or quickly or willingly to change. Mm-hmm. And so we're basically saying we the system needs to be changed mm-hmm. across the mm-hmm. board. We need to, every practitioner that provides public exams should be provided POP curriculum. Fifty mm-hmm. percent of women, and you can certainly find estimates between in studies between three percent and ninety three percent prevalence of this condition, and the three and the ninety three can throw out the window. That's that's crazy. Right. But yeah. you see forty and fifty percent all the time, and I'm seeing fifty often, often, often now when I'm looking at studies. Mm-hmm. The fifty percent prevalence, it just makes no sense that we're not evolving this space. It makes no mm-hmm. sense at all. So what's going to happen? And this is my humble opinion, is Patients will push this, just as they did with breast health. Prior to the mid-1970s, you could not say the word breast out loud. Mm -hmm. You could not insert the word breast in print media, newspapers or magazines. And and I spoke with someone who was was a producer for GMA. And back then it was just called Good Morning America. It didn't have any acronym to it then. Back in the, the first year, it was cooking. And they were doing a segment on breast health. And it was, it was on uh, breastfeeding, that was it. Mm-hmm. And the producer was told, you cannot say the word breast in this segment. And he was, he's a really cool guy. He's like, he was like, Lee was loving it. He's like, well, are you kidding me? How <laughs> can we do this segment if we can't say the word breast? And he told them that he could give them several alternative terms that they could use if they'd prefer that. <laughs> and then they backed off and let them use the word breast. Well, that's where we are with vagina still. Yeah. And the vagina stigma is just, it's crazy. So I don't know if that stigma is partially why the medical community isn't comfortable with change yet because they think it's too awkward. Mm -hmm. But with the breast health campaign, and it was women of of stature that brought it out of the closet, but it was patients. It was, they were patients that experienced breast cancer and they were brave enough to talk about it out loud. And that's what shifted the status quo. So, and I believe me, I chase celebrities all the time. <laughs> I'm like, okay, she's got six kids. She's got to have prolapse. You know? And I chase them down like, oh, what's that Sherry public? And rip, 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 you know, or delete, delete, delete. <laughs> but it, it's, I, I just think it's, it's, I don't think it's with any malice or mm-hmm. anything like that. I think it's just medical 
layers just don't adapt quickly or easily to change. They just don't. And, yeah. and once once we make the big shift, once that pivotal, whether it's an interview or I'm hopeful it's my next book or whatever it is that shifts at the status quo happens, then everyone is like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> I know we yeah. talk about it soon. So you just have to kick back and just continue to do your work and just wait for the magic to happen. Hopeful and yeah. And I, I was on a panel yesterday. It was in the menopause space. And the the panel was a series of people were women working in in that space in all sorts of capacities. But it was really to do with sexual wellness and sexual health as it pertains to menopause. And one of the comments I made was that that you know menopause is having a moment right now, and all of a sudden everybody celebrities are playing a big role are talking right. about menopause and there's lots of products coming out like it, it, it's, it's a conversation and it's becoming it's, it's getting a lot of press one of the big topics within menopause is genitourinary syndrome of menopause gsm and all of the conditions under the umbrella of gsm are pelvic floor related are vagina related bladder health related so the the opening of the conversation of menopause is indirectly i feel playing a role in helping get the conversation of vaginas because you know trust me vagina coach is not easy to be approved on social media <laughs> right, channels right. i've been, i've had ads shut down and i've you know and and even on instagram in the last like six-ish months we can say the word vagina without our post being flagged and without our post being taken down and so there's there is it's starting to happen and i'm hopeful as you say that it will and and the other thing is more studies so there is now more research that's happening in that space as well yeah absolutely and and femtech had has a a huge role that they've played in this over the past two or three years femtech has been surging women have been developing developing and designing like you're saying there's a lot more tools available now different treatments are available for all different kinds of, of female wellness and actually based wellness and menopause is a that's what got the whole menopause thing going was the, yep. the femtech surge so i'm thankful for that and we're certainly much further ahead this year than we were like three years ago that's for sure right. yep. so we just yep. keep pushing the envelope and and we just keep poking at the media and chasing them down and it's all gonna yep. all gonna shift soon so yeah so coming back to where at the beginning when you were talking about your story and then what led you to this now amazing amazing community you have on Facebook and women supporting women and a lot of the the emotion that is shared. So you mentioned your emotion was anger. That was really your main, pretty much only, I don't want to say only, but that's kind of what you referenced was that was what was really driving you. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the more common emotions, one of the big ones is anger, resentment, mm-hmm. even fear, anxiety. So when you are, when when the people are talking in your community about about their experience of it what are the more common emotions that you hear from i actually copied and pasted so i could read this off to you i post i often well not often i always when i'm giving a speech at a medical conference i'll post a question in our patient forum targeting my topic and then i can use actual direct quotes from our patient following in my speech so a few years ago i asked the woman to tell me in one word how POP makes them feel. So I'm going to read this to you. Mm-hmm. Defective, frustrated, isolated, stunned, alone, shocked, broken, embarrassed, weird, handicapped, sloppy, damaged, freaky, 
limited, imprisoned, uncomfortable, disgusting, empty, violated, disabled, fearful, vacant, wasted, lonely, gross, weak, droopy, destroyed, limited, ruined, depressed, solitary, homeless, scared, old, ashamed, pained, worried, drained, misguided, betrayed, forsaken, angry, defeated, cheated, demoralized, deformed, suicidal, useless, wow. failure, robbed, gross, grieving, afraid, cautious, nervous, vulnerable, limited, devastated, weird, forlorn, abnormal, helpless, silenced, guarded, invisible, terrified, hindered, unlovable, broken, repulsive, ashamed, hurting, imprisoned, marginalized, unfeminine. That says it all. Certainly, the physical ramifications of POP are devastating for women. The impact to self-esteem, massive, yeah. massive. That's the big cornerstone. Zero yeah, doubt. Yeah. The mental health component to, to all pelvic floor challenges, but in my opinion, specific to prolapse, is the biggest hurdle, is the biggest challenge, exactly as you just said. That is such a powerful list of words like that's says it all says it all it says yeah. it all yeah you want to just wrap wow. your arms around them all and give them a great big hug and say okay yes we'll get through this we will you know yes it's an additional layer of prolapse for some and now statistically i have seen stats at around the 30 ish percent is avulsion so avulsions of the, the levator ani is one group of pelvic floor muscles. And when a portion or sometimes all of the muscle is, is pulled away or torn away from the bone, so it can be partial or a complete, and it can be on one or both sides, this adds an additional complexity and challenge because right now there there is there is some surgeons and I'm hoping to interview them on the, the podcast who have some surgical repair techniques, but it is not a it's not a standard like, oh, we're gonna fix your bladder prolapse. Oh, we're gonna fix your rectocele. It it is much more complex. So how often does that conversation come up in your group and what are kind of your words of wisdom specific to that layer? It comes up surprisingly and I think that's probably because women that have a falsion especially the really bad avulsions are it's they're they're physically so impacted by it they have mm -hmm. so much it, it's horrible for them what they have to, to navigate and so I think because they're because women that have got let's just say cystocele rectocele grade two they're they're very frustrated as well but the manifestations of avulsion are much more above and beyond what has, is occurring in just your standard POP scenario. And because they don't have the options, they cannot use a pessary, they cannot, or if they can, it's not very effective. And the surgical options are few and far between because there is a very select, tiny, tiny, tiny group of urogynecologists globally that do levator repairs yep. and are good at levator repairs. They, they know their imaging well, they're, they're really evolving the, the imaging and then the repair mm -hmm. flow so beautifully, but it's going to take quite a bit of time before that gets spread around and accepted internationally. So we, we do, typically we've got, there are, I would say probably around three or four, maybe five women in our space 
that have gone from being completely devastated by this to finding their answers for themselves and what works for them. And certainly they, they have got to, to do above and beyond what the other women have to do to help themselves maintain their day-to-day activities. But they're the ones that usually come in and in those kinds of posts and say, well, just so you know, there is hope try this, try this, try this. And what works for one woman does not work for all women with, with avulsion because it's it's just like prolapse. It's very unique from woman to woman. Mm-hmm. And it's just that the damage is much more severe than what other types of prolapse mm-hmm. damage is. So as, as we see more and more, whether it's studies or just input from those subspecialists, those urogynecologists that are experts. I mean, I love when I see a, a new study or, or there's a going to be an interview or whether it's a podcast or just someone speaking about it in general. I like to share those those links in our forum so that women can actually tune into that stuff or mm-hmm. review that stuff themselves. But oftentimes with medical information share, like with studies, it's it's a little bit muddy for women to understand because they don't understand all the terminology within the right. study itself. So how effective it is, is it varies from person to person. All I can say for those that are suffering with avulsion is is stay hopeful because there's a lot of, exp- not a lot, but there's absolutely exploration and curiosity of expanding that space now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always stop at the um, MRI and ultrasound booths when I'm at conference to, to see what's, mm-hmm. what's, 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 latest studies, you know, give me, give me, give me, so we can yeah. refresh on that stuff. Yes, Stephanie Thompson, who is yeah. the founder of Brave Mama, who she has avulsion, she's an incredible advocate in this space as well, had said in an an interview, I was listening to her being interviewed, and she said, oftentimes, the saying that pelvic organ prolapse is not life-threatening, but it is life-altering, and she said, I call bullshit on that. It is life-threatening. When you are dealing with the, especially the extreme of avulsion, and you had a word on your list there of suicidal, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we have to appreciate the 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 heaviness no pun intended of this diagnosis for yeah. so many people and how it influences so many facets of their lives yeah and on the suicide side we do get more posts suicidal posts than we see avulsion posts wow which speaks to that devastation that so many women feel about pelvic organ prolapse avulsion again is a, a step above and beyond and and a woman that's got pop cannot imagine what the avulsion layers are like but that doesn't mean that they they're not at times devastated as well so we actually have got tools that the forum moderators use that share with them when those posts come in because we are not anywhere near qualified to address the needs of suicide and those women should be referred to someone who is an expert in that space that can truly help them walk through Mm -hmm. the layers so Mm -hmm. that's that's a big deal it's a very big deal yeah that's amazing back to your surgery personally but also lots of people in your group going through surgeries the topic of mesh always comes up mm-hmm. and there's there w- was a lot of there was a specific type of mesh that was often used that created a lot of issues erosion pain and and really left people not every single person but many people who had mesh implanted in a worse position than they were before. Can you talk a little bit about, if did you have mesh? What sort of, when the, the doctors you speak with, what is what are people using now when they can't use their the person's own tissue, so a native tissue repair? 
there's a lot of misconceptions about mesh. Mesh. I am a transvaginal mesh success story. Mesh mm-hmm. was used on the rectal seal and the cystal seal for me, not on the, at the enteral seal. That was native tissue repaired. And here's the thing. I spoke at the FDA both in 2011 when everything really blew up here, as well as in 2019 when it was blowing up over in the UK. Mm-hmm. And in both scenarios, the issues were the same. It wasn't... I mean, and they have discovered that there are some issues with some of the meshes. It's not a matter of this particular brand specifically. There were several brands that had to be taken off the market. Mm-hmm. It's not that that it's polypropylene, although there's a small sector of people that have got very reactionary bodies, and so for them it might be an issue. But in general, polypropylene has been used for hernia surgery forever, for a long, long time without, you know, any of the big, big issues. Mm-hmm. So what it boils down to is when mesh first came out, I mean, they recognized that that one-third of women that have prolapse repair have to have repeat surgery. Who wants to have repeat surgery? Nobody wants to go there. So they, they thought, well, if it works for hernia, why wouldn't it work for prolapse too? So that's why they started using it for prolapse. But once they got cooking with it, industry thought that they could bring in gynecologists and train them. Gynecologists, your gynecologists have two to three extra years of schooling mm-hmm. specific to the pelvic cavity in women. They, they, their specialty is pelvic organ prolapse. That's what they do all day, every day. And so to assume that gynecologists, OBGYNs or, or other types of gynecology, could actually do these mesh surgeries was really, I can't believe that they even thought they could go there, but they did. So they would bring them in and they would train them over a weekend course, turn them loose. Well, of course there were complications. I mean, mm-hmm. when you think of the whole backdrop, it's not a shock that they, they happened. And I've spoken to a lot of women that have had complications over the years. In fact, I, when I was at the FDA in 2011, I sat right in the middle of a whole group of them. And back then, it was the enemy. They thought I had you know, money in my pocket coming from these mesh companies. And that was never the case. It was just right. I was a success story. And it's a valuable tool in the right hands for the right patient. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hesitate to have mesh because there was no big you know, hoopla going on at that point in time. I didn't know anything about mesh. My gynae said that your gynae said she would use it. I'm like, okay, fine. Whatever you think it'll work, that's okay with me. And they don't use mesh for rectal seal as often as they used to. They're doing a lot more native tissue on that side too. It's 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 an individual patient to patient. But mesh is a very, very valuable tool in the right hands. So what we tell women to do is to research, research, research your, your gynecologist. You want to know how much experience they have using mesh. You want to know, well, what type of mesh they're going to use on you. Are they going to use a native tissue repair? Are they going to use a, a bio-mesh? And women think bio-mesh and polypropylene mesh are kind of the same thing, and they're not. The, the bio-meshes are made from it's pig tissue or it's bovine or, or porcine, so it's pig or cow tissue. And I have not been impressed with studies, follow-up studies, with the biomeshes being used, sting, the efficacy being there long-term. Whereas with the polymesh, you're talking long-term here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, certainly the body continues to age, you know, and you may have additional issues with some incontinence down the road. That's what slings, slings, slings are polypropylene mesh. Yep. And they've been doing slings forever. You know, that, that's not anything new. That's been around way before they were using the polypropylene for prolapse. So it's so important that women do their homework. As we've said, women that have had complications, they just suffer horribly from them. The, the pain and the dysfunction in their life, is, it's, it's terrible. And many of them have had just 
I mean, talk about suicide in a sector. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that became much more prevalent in that sector because of how they suffered. But you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, and, and this is a valuable tool. It's helped so many women. And the thing with women that have had success with mesh is that they don't talk about it. They're repaired. That, they, that's the big thing. They get Even on with the their lives. It's started your Facebook group, right? They yeah. Now they don't have this problem. They don't need the 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 help or be part of these groups anymore. Right. So a lot of a lot of what Move gets on. shared in the groups is often the bad part because those right. are the people that are needing the help. Exactly. Yeah, we're very lucky in our space. We have got women that have had their surgeries or, or using non-surgicals, whatever mm-hmm. they're happy with, and they stick around because the support in our group is is, is over the top. It's it's yeah. awesome. So we're very blessed with that. But but yeah, by and large, women just, they don't talk about their success stories. And so anything that a woman that's going into mesh surgery, and I have this happen all the time. I get calls on the landline all the time about this, that they need to talk to me because they watched some YouTubes, some videos that were mesh bashing, and they're terrified because their urogynecologist wants to use mesh. Yeah. And I'll ask them, well, now I ask them, where were those, was a person based out of that? that YouTube is from and what's the date on that YouTube mm-hmm. and they're typically all out of the UK because when we changed we went to, when I spoke at the FDA in 2011 I strongly recommended that they sanction who can use mesh and who can't that's mm-hmm. a, a core substructure there and those changes were made I mean I was the only person saying that obviously other people yeah. were saying that as well but when we made the changes here every country has its own agency overlooking mm-hmm. healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so every country did it individually in their own way, in their own time, how they felt was appropriate. And UK didn't make the changes. Mm-hmm. And so all the complications continued to happen over there. And the gynecologists continued to, to do mesh surgeries over there for prolapse. They shouldn't be doing prolapse surgeries at all. And so when it blew up over there, it was because mesh surgery was provided for a woman who was a really well-known journalist. And she was a, a big shot with a newspaper and she blew it up. Big time. Mm-hmm. So the good news with that is, is that they did make changes over there, but at the cost of all those women, and that should have been addressed the same time we were addressing right. it, you know, back in 2011. So as I mentioned earlier, medicine does not like to change easily, yeah. you know, and so it's it's often at issues occurring to patients that mm-hmm. you know those changes mm-hmm. finally occur. Sadly, sadly. I have a couple of last questions, one along the train of this, where you, as I recommend, at least I'm, I'm making an assumption here, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would recommend for prolapse surgery to work with a, a urogynecologist as opposed to a, an OB-GYN or gynecologist, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yes, always. So how does somebody find, when you say do the research, how do we know, and, and we're, unfortunately, I'm in Canada where... It can take you a year to get in to see somebody. And then if, if you want to see multiple, they won't allow you to have multiples. And it, it could be a two, three, four-year process to do your research and actually get to speak with these people. So what do you recommend in terms of finding a good urogynecologist? Step one should be to Google the name of the closest large city that you live by. And then plus urogynecologist. And that's just the word gynecologist with the URL in front of it and see what comes up. Then when that comes up, then Google those those urogynecologist names individually to find whatever you can about them. And certainly you're going to run across their websites and it's going to tell you that how wonderful they are and all these procedures that they do and blah, blah, blah. 
But if you dig down deep enough, and I'm not sure how it would flow with the Canadian side, but in the U.S. here, what happens is watchdog websites come up and like Vitals and Rate MDs and, and mm-hmm. those kinds of watchdog physician websites where you can actually sometimes find patient feedback on them. And if you don't find anything positive about a urogynecologist, does not mean that it's a bad urogynecologist. It just means that that, that, that nothing got posted. Vocal of their, yeah. Yeah. And if you find a urogynecologist who's got three, four, or five complaints, obviously that's a flag. You don't want that mm-hmm. urogynecologist. So it, it's really tricky for those of you who live in social medicine countries because you have so little control over, you know, who you can see. Right. If you've got your own private private insurance, well, then it's a little bit easier for you. And it's coming hard. to spaces like yours as well, where there are people who have had surgery and there are there are other specific pelvic surgery Facebook groups as well, prolapse surgery Facebook groups as well, where people are sharing the names of their surgeons, good and bad experiences, that type of thing. So mm-hmm. those would be places, good places to start. Right, right. And I highly discourage women, and this is jumping back a step here to the mesh mm-hmm. conversation, discourage women from going into mesh bashing forums mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's an agenda there. Like we do allow mesh discussion in our space. We don't allow mesh bashing. Mm-hmm. When they can come in, they can tell their story. If it's a bad story, they can tell that story as well. But we don't allow them to tag in and like don't ever use because we get these posts that right, right. don't ever consider mesh because that's that's a mis- that's that's bad information to share with patients. Everyone's journey is different. Everyone should review all options, do your homework, and then make your own informed decision informed on, on, on which way you go. A thousand percent. So last thing is in terms of your like if you think of all the people in your Facebook group, your own personal experience with pelvic health, what have been the the most successful management strategies for people living with prolapse? Wow, that's see, that's really hard to 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 target because everyone's needs are so different. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important that women try a pessary first. Mm-hmm. I highly encourage them to try and stick it out for at least a year. And we see often women go for two years before they move ahead to surgery. And the value of that is it gives you time to really understand how everything works down there, understand those sensations. If I eat this, I feel this. If I do this, I feel this. And understand that prolapse. Educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself. Learn everything you can about prolapse and ask questions and try and get the answers as best you can in those forums that you're in to help guide you on your journey. If, I mean, so there are certainly women like me that I wanted to be fixed immediately. I don't have time for this. So just fix me. But I think there's a huge value in, in giving yourself a little space and time to really understand your body and mm-hmm. what will make you happy. And you may discover that you never want surgery because that pessary is working so well for you. Or if you combine the pessary with some other non-surgical treatment that's working so well for you. You changed your diet, whatever. And that kind of information and, and insight doesn't happen just overnight. So right. give yourself time and space and, and, and just keep asking all the right questions and that'll kind of guide you to where you're supposed to go. Perfect. The, the work you do is incredible and so important. And I am so grateful on behalf of everybody who has a pelvic floor for everything that you do and all of the the places you speak and the people that you influence. So thank you so much for your time today and for all the work that you do. Oh, it's my pleasure, hon. It's always a delight to share information. 
and shine a light for the newbies coming into the space. So yes, yeah, that, that's a good thing. That's always a good Thanks thing. Thanks so much, so, and thank you for all you do too. You're you're awesome. I love your work. So thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.